America's Oldies But Goodies, Episode 29. down here it's been such a joy I mean because I'm a all I ever wanted to do when I, when I was a kid was, was play guitar and be in a rock and roll band and and all these people that I looked up to you know all the Claptons and the Joe Walsh's and, I mean when Joe Walsh walked into my shop the first time I just all I could do is go put my arm around and just go Joe Walsh Joe my hero and, yeah. and then uh, like maybe a month or so ago I went to open my front door to open up for business and, and Carlos Santana standing in, in our doorway and well, Carlos uh, he's been here a few times over the years but he came in he's sitting there playing a guitar and I'm just chatting with him and I just go Carlos one of the great joys of my job is just sitting here with one of my guitars heroes just noodling on a Fender Stratocaster yeah. in front of me and I'm just just soaking up that moment oh yeah and, uh, everyone and welcome to another encounter with some groovy moments from the past we're visiting the 60s with host dick scopatoni whose pop group harper's bazaar had a hit record back then called feeling groovy he'll be talking with our guests about a decade that shaped a whole generation not only with the most magnificent music ever made but also the politics protests and pretty much everything that happened in the swing in 60s so dick who's on today's show Thanks, John. Since the humble beginnings of Emerald City Guitars over 20 years ago, Jay Boone has built a high standard of trust and integrity, making him one of the front runners in the worldwide vintage guitar market. We're going to talk with him about vintage guitars, and I get to ask him about a guitar that I've kept over the years since the time I was on the road with Harper's Bazaar. It's a Martin D35 with a Brazilian rosewood back that I bought new in 1967. I've used it on a lot of recordings, and I've never heard a better studio guitar than my Martin. Jay has bought and sold vintage guitars to many superstars over the years, and we're going to hear some fascinating stories about who is playing what nowadays and what kind of guitar players have emerged from Seattle and the Emerald City's Purple Haze. Jay Boone coming up. for retro and vintage merchandise, you'll find some fabulous buys at Dick's website, americasoldiesbutgoodies.com. Autograph records, tiki mugs, golf memorabilia, even a Paul McCartney signed album cover. Check it out at americasoldiesbutgoodies.com. By the way, you can listen to every episode of our show there too. That's americasoldiesbutgoodies.com. 
Jay Boone opened the doors of Emerald City Guitars in the summer of 1996 and has never looked back. After spending years in the Seattle music scene, Jay got into music retail managing and co-owning several shops in the area. He said, when I opened my doors over 20 years ago, a lot of people told me the vintage market was dead, but I was pretty sure it wasn't. Jay has managed to make Emerald City Guitars one of the most highly claimed vintage guitar shops in the country, counting many bona fide superstars as his personal clients. He goes on to say, we always try to keep it down home and friendly at the shop while maintaining a high level of professionalism and service. He's been in countless bands over the years and still manages to fit gigs into his busy lifestyle as a husband, father, business owner, and friend to all who know him. And I'm glad to have him on today. Today's show, Jay Boone, welcome to America's Oldies But Goodies. Oh, thank you, Dick. Man, that sounds pretty impressive, what you just read. I'm, <laughs> yeah. I'm absorbing that all. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. We should know this guy, right? <laughs> That's right. <laughs> yeah. So, listen, you are in Seattle. I was about to say up in Seattle, because I'm in California, but you're just in Seattle. Are you near Pioneer Square? You know what? I'm in the heart of Pioneer Square. We're right down in South Washington and First Avenue and... I'm about a five-minute walk from Safeco Field and, and the same for Century Link. That's our, our baseball field and our, our football field. And, uh, you know, Pioneer Square is the historic district of Seattle. It's just it's a, a wonderful place. Down sure. Here. Yeah, I remember it well. I lived in uh, Issaquah back in the late 70s. And, of course, Pike's Place Market was always a, a fun trip to go oh, watch yeah. them throw the fish back and forth. And I'm trying to remember the Kingdom was what it was called back then. Yeah, Be- the old Kingdom. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, and that that got imploded or exploded, but uh, uh, it's been replaced. What replaced it? What's it called now? Century Link, and that's uh, where the Seahawks play, as well as the Seattle Sounders and They've been doing concerts there, too. Um, oh, yeah. Just a great venue. And as I recall back then, it was a big deal. Boeing would have their Christmas there in the kingdom. Yeah. And it took two or three nights to get all of the Boeing employees in. I don't know if they still do that or or, or what's going on with Boeing. Oh, I'm assuming there's still a major uh, employer in Seattle. Oh, yeah. Yeah. In fact, they just built a huge complex right here in Pioneer Square, and they uh, have 1,200 people working down here, and it kind of ramped things up. Uh, so Pioneer Square is changing, and it's going to continue to change. Over the next few years, they're they're tearing down the viaduct out here, which is a, a highway that kind of runs along the waterfront. They're going to open it up to a big water park, and it's going to be a, kind of a different scene down here. But hopefully they'll maintain some of the beautiful historic value of this area. Yeah, that whole Pioneer Square area is absolutely beautiful. I, I always loved it when I was living up there. Let's uh, start with kind of a brief overview of your professional background, and we'll begin with the years before you started Emerald City Guitar. Were you born in Seattle? I was born in Chehalis, which is kind of centered in between Seattle and Portland, uh, right down I-5 in Lewis County. And I kind of grew up out in the rural area out in southwest Washington. Started playing music at a really young age. And once I got out of high school and and short stint in college, I just wanted to pursue a a career in rock and roll. Mm -hmm. At at that time, you know, I'd grown up with the Beatles and... Of course, remember your hit, Harper's Bazaar, feeling groovy. So I, I, I was, that's the kind of music I grew up with. So, you know, in the 70s, early 70s, after I got out of high school, I put together a band, an outfit, and we played regionally all over. Occasionally, we'd jump up to Tacoma and Seattle and play a few uh, gigs up here. But we were kind of stuck down in a little small town, and, and so our, our thinking was, we got to get out of here. We got to get up into the big city. And, and make a run at this. So uh, in 1980, I moved up to Seattle with a, a group at that time, and we started doing a little bit of recording up here and playing the clubs and kind of feeling out the atmosphere. I found out that there's a lot of competition, and we were just like little tiny fish in a big old pond up here. So uh, consequently, what what happened is that band just broke up, and uh, I managed to get a, a job at a music store, being a salesperson, to kind of make up for lack of income from playing the clubs, which, you know, you can't really make a, 
a ton of money doing that. But I, so I was playing four or five nights a week in the clubs. I was working um, as a salesman in a music store, and I kind of kind of did that for several years. And while while working in the music stores, I, I managed to become a floor manager and then a sales manager. Uh, so I kind of worked my way up in the ranks of that. Um, so, but around around 1984, I had an opportunity audition for a band that was being managed and, and poised for a breakthrough by Hearts ex manager Ken Kinnear, who had just left that band. Or I think they they may have even fired him at the time and changed management. So Ken was putting together a couple of groups. He was trying to get a major record deal. So I went audition for this band that at the time was kind of like a heart band or a Pat Benatar-style group. Great-looking female vocalist and and then a group of guys doing original music, rock and roll, and they were called Widow. And that was about, ni- about 1983 or 84. I remember a name from, and maybe it's the 60s, a DJ, Pat O'Day. Is that a correct oh, name? sure. All right. Pat O'Day, absolutely. He, and he was a Seattle... DJ, right? Oh, yeah. yeah. Did, did he have something to do with Jimi Hendrix? Other than perhaps meeting him more than a few times and possibly booking him, uh, I, that's the extent that yeah. I know. I, I okay. know Halliday was a, was a pretty ubiquitous figure in the, the Northwest scene, and I think even Nash had some national uh, attention as well. But I remember uh, when I was a kid, he had a, uh, a, a club out in the out on the beach area in Southwest Washington called Pat O'Day Dunes. And, uh, and he was a, a DJ as well. Yeah, and he's written a few books. He's, he's a pretty, uh, he's a pretty big deal out here in Seattle and he's still kicking around. He is. Okay. Yeah. All right. All right. I knew, I know the name and, but that's all I remembered was, and it was probably because he was the, you know, big time DJ back in the sixties. Yeah. Maybe that was it. I'm not yeah. sure. What, uh, do you consider to be some of your, most notable successes in the guitar business? Obviously, getting this shop open and and raising it to national prominence over 22 years I, I, is pretty successful. And I mean, we are, I believe, one of the leading vintage guitar stores in the country, and we're, we have a worldwide audience. I mean, that's, that's been a big success. And we, I mean, our clients are, the, I could run off a list of guitar players that we all certainly recognize and so we deal with a lot of guys everybody from Carlos Santana to ZZ Top to John Mayer Joe Bonamassa and then collectors serious guitar collectors from around the world so we have a lot of really high end clients and we deal with a lot of pretty special guitars that basically get up into the six figures and so that's that's pretty successful uh, for me, you know. You mentioned guitar collectors. Now, do you find that many of the collectors, and they're looking for some pretty heavy-duty items, are actual full-time guitarists themselves? Or no, maybe they've played guitar, but they're just into collecting guitars. You know, Dick, you kind of get both. There's there's several kinds of collectors. So there's the, the super serious high-end guys. And, and a lot of these guys are obviously guys that have the money to, to spend a half a million dollars on a guitar. And most of these guys can play guitar, so they enjoy that aspect of it. Uh, but they're just more into the, the cool factor of owning mm-hmm. these amazing guitars, and they're a great investment. I mean, the, yeah, they just the keep going up. Market. Yeah, it's, yeah. It's, a, it's an impressive portfolio if you have some of these really high-end collectible pieces that we uh, that we acquired. So. Now, do you find that there is a particular chunk of time, I'll just pick out the 60s, but it can be any time, where the value of guitars, vintage guitars from a particular age group just goes through the ceiling? Is it, What time frame would that be? Well, if we're talking strictly electric guitars, then I would have to say the guitars from the 50s okay. are, are the most collectible instruments, and specifically from two manufacturers, and that's Fender and Gibson. Mm-hmm. Those guitars are highly sought after, and you know, the caveat being that 
they have to be in original condition, they have to be playable, and, and they definitely have to be uh, authenticated by an expert. And then if we're talking about acoustic guitars, uh, I'm sure you guys strummed a few old Gibsons and Martins and Harpers Bazaar. Oh, yeah, yeah. Then the pre-war stuff, pre-war Martin, so anything manufactured, let's say from 1942, backwards, and then, of course, the same with Gibson. So mid-30s to 1942 are highly sought after. All right, we've got to take a quick break. Let me punch up a tune, and we'll be right back. Later in today's show, I'm going to tell you my story about type 2 diabetes. But first, let's talk about Longevity, the program that I've joined that was started by Dr. Joel Wallach, who's on a 40-year mission to educate people about proper nutrition and supplementation, which is the real solution for optimal health and longevity. I've set up a website to tell you all about it, reduceyournumbers.com. That's it, www.reduceyournumbers.com. ReduceYourNumbers.com. I put my story on that site to let you know what I'm doing to improve my health. Both my wife Mimi and I use Longevity supplements every day. And as a result, now I'm a crusader for Doc Wallach and what I consider to be the best health program I have yet to encounter. So please check it out at www.ReduceYourNumbers.com. You know, uh, interestingly, I watch Pawn Stars every once in a while. Of course, guitars pop up on yeah. on that as well. And I can't think of the guy's name that they always call in to, to authenticate these things. Are, are you familiar with with uh, whoever that guy is? I, I'm sure. I mean, I, I've just watched Pawn Stars just not enough to even know any of the names. But I know they have an expert that they they, they phone into. And, you know, there's there's some guys around the country that really know their stuff. I, I like to think that we're kind of the go-to guys to it, and we are. I mean, we do uh, authentication, and we do appraisals for major collectors. We've done appraisals over the years for Hart and Paul Allen, and and then you know, some of the high high-profile guitar players and bands and so forth. They turn to us for advice and buying, and, and they buy a lot from us and authentication and so forth. So. Yeah, there's there's some guys that really know their stuff. You know, I've got a 1967 Martin D35, and I went on your website 
and you got one for sale. Uh, I'm looking at it. Yeah, I, I think do. it's around 6400 bucks. Uh, about right. Yeah, this has got the Brazilian rosewood back, yeah. and, and I bought it new in 1967 and took it on the road with Harper's for, oh. the, for the whole time. Now it hangs on my wall now. <laughs> I don't play it all that much. So it looks like it could be worth in the neighborhood of 6000 or more. It's in great yeah. shape. So, Well, you know what, Dick? I mean... I would say more. If I praise that guitar, here's something cool and interesting is the fact that you bought it brand new. Yeah. And you've had it all these years. And the fact that you were in Harper's Bazaar, mm-hmm. that's just a very cool, interesting story. And that's the kind of story that collectors love. Ah. They like to know the history of their guitars. And it has some provenance. Like, obviously it does. That's a big deal. Yeah. That's, that raises the stakes a few thousand dollars. Yeah. Interesting. Okay. Yeah. Well, that's good to know. Now, of course, it it stays in the family forever, as far oh, as I'm darn, concerned. I was now, you know, one of the things I noticed on Pawn Stars is they come in with these guitars signed by the guitar yeah. player. Is the signature a big deal? You know, uh, I get that question asked of me all the time, and my answer is always the same. Unless it's a really prominent guitarist, there's only a few guys that carry enough weight to where it would demand that. And so guys like Clapton, Jimmy Page, and it kind of stops there. Obviously, if you have a guitar signed by Jimi Hendrix, that, you know, yeah. that's hard to authenticate. And you have to have a letter of provenance and so forth. But, you know, there's so many of these artists will just sign guitars and they'll auction off. So it's not really a big deal. Now, I just had a, an original 1951 Fender Telecaster that was built and owned by Leo Fender, huh? who, who owned Fender, started Fender. Guitar. Sure, yeah. His partner, George Fullerton, and George Fullerton also was the co-creator of the Fender Telecaster, obviously one of the most iconic electric guitars ever made. Sure. So this was George's personal guitar, and he had signed the back of it. And so all these years later... George passed away, I think, in early 2000s. This guitar lands in my shop. So, and that guitar has been uh, in several books, so it, it's well documented. So that was a that was a very cool piece to get, and of course, that signature is pretty highly sought after. Any uh, note of value on that? A general parameter of value for, for that guitar? Well, I mean, that guitar sold within two days it yeah and let's just say six figures okay i'll leave it at that <laughs> interesting i uh, just talking about a, a lot of the well-known people that have guitars have you met any of them that have really left a memorable impression on you now are we talking about artists yeah oh yes yeah. i mean over the years down here it's been such a joy. I mean, because I'm a, all I ever wanted to do when I, when I was a kid was, was play guitar and be in a rock and roll band. And, and all these people that I looked up to, you know, all the Clapton's and the Joe Walsh's. And, I mean, when Joe Walsh walked into my shop the first time, I just, all I could do is go put my arm around him and just go, Joe Walsh, Joe, my hero. And, yeah. and then, uh, like, maybe a month or so ago, I went to open my front door to open up for business and, and Carlos Santana standing in, in our doorway and, well, Carlos, uh, he'd been here a few times over the years. But he came in, he's sitting there playing a guitar, and I'm just chatting with him, and I just go, Carlos, one of the great joys of my job is just sitting here with one of my guitar's heroes, just noodling on a Fender Stratocaster yeah. in front of me, and I'm just just soaking up that moment. Oh, yeah. And, uh, and then some of these guys have really become good friends of ours. All the guys in Cheap Trick are good friends with us. Um, Billy Gibbons from ZZ Top big part of what we do down here. Um, the County Crows, really great guys that we always hang out with. And these bands will come to town and we'll sometimes go have dinner with them and go to their show and hang out and just well, hang out at the shop. And, uh, it's, it's just really a cool thing that's developed down over the years. Does your son work in the shop? My son, Trevor, grew up in the shop. So he was seven years old when I opened it. And he's going to be 29 in January. Ah, okay. And for the last 10 years, Trevor has worked for me down here. And Trevor's a fantastic guitar player. Grew up in the business, grew up watching dad play, and, and he's a left-handed guitar player like Jimi Hendrix was, or an, another notable Seattle guy, Kurt Cobain. Mm-hmm. Uh, so Trevor has a band called the Hollers, and they, they're just 
recorded their first full-length record at Studio X out here in Seattle. They're getting ready to, to drop that. And Trevor owns the first left-handed electric guitar that Leo Fender ever made. So Gee. Trevor's a collector, he's a player, oh. and he is the heir apparent to, to Emerald City Guitars. He's, yeah. a, he's a great guy, and he's a, he is one of the guys that really has bonded with a lot of the younger artists, like the John Mayers, the Joe Bonamasas, the, you know, a lot of these guys that are a little more in, in his age group, and I got him flying around, go fly down to L.A. and hang out with, you know, the guys in McCartney's band or John Mayer's guys, or and we'll swap guitars, we'll go down and fly down and load a truck up with a bunch of gear and drive it back up. So Trevor's really, he's doing a fantastic job for me, and, and he's, a, he's a great kid, man, and, and folks are really drawn to him. Oh, that's that's terrific. Yeah. Let me flip-flop a question on you. In spite of all of our successes, there was probably a, a few hills that we couldn't climb. What's your best failure story? Well, I've got a great story. Okay, good. <laughs> Go with it. <laughs> uh, so I'll, there, there are two that come to mind, Dick. Mm-hmm. So, uh, the first one, so all through my youth, I'm, I'm playing rock and roll. I'm on the road. I'm a road dog. I'm staying up late. I'm obviously... Calling to all the vices of rock and roll, you know the old the old song "Sex and Drugs and Rock and Roll." Right. I was living that. So <laughs> okay. In, in 1994, I was 40 years old, and it was a couple of years before I opened the shop. I pretty much had bottomed out, and I was basically drinking and drugging, and, and you know it's an old story in rock and roll. So at, at that point in my life, I've had enough. I'm gonna. I'm going to stop doing all, all drinking, drug, and everything, and I got clean and sober. So I've been in recovery for 22 years. Wow. Just like my old buddy Pat O'Day out here. Yeah. So I only bring that up because he's all over the radio advertising chick shadow, so it's no secret about his deal. So guys like us that have a success story like that, we don't mind sharing that story and being very transparent about it. So that was my big bottom failure, and then to come out of the ashes of that, and here we are, fast forward 23 years later. Yeah. Actually, yeah. 23 years ago today. Really? <laughs> yeah, September 19th, 1994. I, I that was when I stopped. Drinking. You put the brakes on. Yeah, yeah. Wow. So, so there's that one. Yeah. And then the second one is after I'd owned Emerald City Guitars for a couple of years, I decided to open a second location up closer to the Pike Place Market, and uh, I did that for a couple of years, and I, I just ended up pulling the plug on that. And at the time, I was just I was kind of bummed about it, but at that point I was managing employees. I had like 15 people working for me. And, oh, geez. And there, I was just doing that. And I wasn't enjoying really what I opened my shop to do, which is to find amazing guitars, interact with amazing people, and find them instruments. So I closed that down and kind of focused more on the on the home base shop here, uh, the flagship store. And uh, now we've got an amazing crew. We've got uh, seven people that work here, and they're all pretty successful local musicians and, and just wonderful people, and small. And so, uh, you know, sometimes you get a few bumps in the road. And if, you, if you just don't fold and lay down and, and you're resilient, other windows open. So. Yeah, you know, it's interesting, and I think there are probably any number of small businesses that uh, follow kind of a predictable pattern. Uh, like you did, it sounded like it was time to open a second store, increase the revenue and what have you. But then what you found is that the magic that you had in the first store and all of the time that you were able to give to people in that disappeared, and now you were managing employees, and it wasn't the same thing. So if it's strictly revenue that you're looking for, maybe you'll, you know, people will do that, open a second and third store. But you lose the touch. You lose the reason to that you even started it in the uh, first place. I couldn't place. agree more. Yeah. I couldn't agree more. Yeah. We're really passionate about it passionate about what we do and and uh, it's just great to love what you do and not make it all about at the end of the day the money because people pick up on that when you're not authentic yeah we 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 insist on enjoying ourselves (laughs) yeah that's good that's that's really good and most of us would like to do that it's one of the things that i get to do and with my podcast I, i like to do it i like to talk to all the people that i talk to all right let's shift gears for a moment and listen to the music what song would that be
Earlier in the show, I mentioned that I would tell you more about the latest health program that I'm on. I've had the good fortune to lead a relatively healthy life, although I'm not sure I can chalk it up to plenty of exercise and a wholesome diet. I've never lasted longer than three months in any health club, and most of my days are spent in front of a computer. But I've been a little surprised by the number of guests that I interview on this show who have type 2 diabetes. Most of us are in the baby boomer age range. I'm 72, and for me, age 50 was when I found out I had type 2 diabetes. I've used various prescriptions over the years, and some of them have helped reduce my numbers a bit, maybe down into the 130 range. Typical numbers for non-diabetics, 90 to 110. Two years ago, I cut back on sugary processed foods, and my blood sugar numbers came down, though not as much as I had hoped. I lost 18 pounds, but not for long. The weight came back again. Recently, I started using longevity supplements, and my diabetes numbers have come down even more. My morning numbers now are between 85 and 114. I can't say for sure why my numbers have dropped, but I can suggest that you take a closer look at the supplement packs I'm using, like the Healthy Body Blood Sugar Pack. Uh, My wife Mimi is using the Healthy Body Weight Loss Pack. You can find these two supplements on my website, ReduceYourNumbers.com, or just call me at 888-653-4399. What are guitar players looking for today that's different from the 60s and 70s, or is there no difference? I think there is a difference. Uh, I think that guitar players, over the years, obviously, a lot of them have grown up, but also the guitar, the instrument itself has become a little more refined and attention to detail. We obviously have way more choices than we did back then. So I think guitar players are a lot pickier today. They're pickier about the playability of a guitar, the versatility of a guitar. So, you know, back in the day, I remember just grabbing a guitar and playing it, and I, you know, when were the strings changed? I didn't care. As long as it plugged in and made some sound and played decent. But now, you know, people are really into getting them dialed in, having fresh strings on them, uh, just getting the most out of them that they can. And, and then another big factor, I think, is that guitar players today are always curious about the resale value of their instrument. Hmm. So when they buy a guitar, it's like, do you think I'm going to be able to get the money back out of this? You know? So they're, they're really, they're really into that. And I think back in the day, we just bought a guitar because we liked it. Yeah. Yeah. Simple I mean, as still, that. That still happens, but just the way the guitar market's gone crazy, the vintage guitars, guys really want to know the value of this thing down the road. You know, if they go to trade it in, am I going to get my money back out of it? I'm curious that you mentioned that your son, did you say Trevor? Is that his name? I I look back, I have people ask me from time to time if a a family member or a, a, you know, grandchild or niece or nephews wants to get into the business, they ask me about it. And I I have to tell them, I, I literally have no clue as to how one would start today. When we were 
getting into the business in the 60s, there was some kind of a general roadmap, I guess you could say. You auditioned for this, 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 and this, and then you bumped up to here, and you could, and you never did end up getting where you were pointed at, but nonetheless, you finally made it. I, and as I tell people today, I don't know what that roadmap looks like. How does a band make it nowadays? What does the road to a hit record look like? Do you know? <laughs> well, I mean, that's, I guess that's the million dollar question. Yeah. yeah. I think it's a lot more, I don't know, skewed now than it used to be. I mean, I think a lot of people are wondering how they actually do get there just because it's obviously the, the record industry, what's happened in the last 10, 20 years. You know, nobody's really buying CDs or albums. I mean, they are, but not like they used to. I mean, yeah. iTunes is huge. Sure. I think a lot of bands who make their revenue touring. You know, a lot of bands are out on the road making huge money and and selling um, swag, right? T-shirts, hats, and anything they can. And then also, a lot of bands will get a break if they get a song on like a movie, TV show, an HBO special. Um, a local artist who's a national act now named Noah Gunderson is a guy that I know he got a song on uh, Sons of Anarchy. And that kind of catapulted his career and, and got him into some national prominence. And so little things like that, people are getting a little creative about you know, how to do it these days. And uh, it'll be interesting to see really what happens here in the next 10, 20 years in the music industry. It's so now, I don't, I'm not sure I want to use the word foreign, but it is really kind of foreign to me now because we used to be with Warners and, and that was your standard record label yeah. and that, that that's not going on nowadays. So, yeah, and it will be interesting to see where people go. I think with the music business, it's a matter of you begin with a heavy-duty desire to do it and if you have that, then you start getting creative about, you know, how do I break down the door? Where do I where do I go to do it? And and it's a constant battle. You really can't let up. You always have to be moving forward. You just can't stop. That's that's the, I think the nature of showbiz anyway. Uh, yeah. Probably yeah. in that respect, it hasn't really changed much over the last fifty years or so. Yeah, and I mean it parallels with professional sports or any field like that. You know. The guys that want it the worst and have the most talent, those are the guys that are going to make it. Now, if someone wants to find out about what they're, I'm, a, I'm going to make the assumption here that a lot of our listeners are people that already have a guitar from their past that they never gave up. Like in my case, I never gave up the, the Martin D35. Right. But they can get a hold of you, and it's as simple as emeraldcityguitars.com. Typically, in order for you to give someone a ballpark feel on something, do you actually need the physical guitar in front of you, or will photos do? You know, ideally, having the instrument in front of me, of course, is going to be the best option for getting um, an accurate appraisal. Yeah. Um, however, there are just a few key questions I can ask people, and, and we can we can determine pretty close what we're looking at. You know, and I do plenty of that. Pictures will tell me a lot. Serial number. Just kind of questions about the guitar and the history of it helps a lot as well. Yeah, and I would think for acoustic guitars, you'd almost have to listen to the the real guitar to get an idea of what it sounds like. Yeah, I mean, ultimately, that is a factor. But, I mean, when you look at a, a, a sweet old D35 Brazilian Rosewood, the things set up proper and... No, they're they're pretty consistently good sounding instruments. Yeah, I had my experience with that is I used it in the studio back in the sixties and I have loaned it out any number of times to people wanting to go into the studio. It is the singular best acoustic studio guitar I have ever heard. It 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 uh, loves studio microphones. Yeah, so uh, and and you know what's crazy? There's certain instruments you find when you're recording that mask other instruments like a grand piano and an acoustic guitar don't do well together. So right. when you're able to feature the acoustic, at least strumming the acoustic, not necessarily playing lead on it, but uh if you can keep that out front and everything below it in terms of volume, uh, you get that sweet sound that uh, you're not going to get with very many other acoustic guitars. What's been your experience? Now, for example, if somebody wants to go into the studio 
with an acoustic guitar. Uh, do you have any recommendation as to what kind of acoustic, what brand? Or that might be kind of a tough one to to figure, I guess. Well, to me, there are a few questions I ask folks: What style of music are you playing? What are the other instruments going to be? Like you kind of alluded to the grand piano and the acoustic guitar for comparison there. So it just kind of depends. Is there going to be a lot of electric instruments? Is it going to be primarily acoustic instruments? So a few questions like that can kind of dictate the recommendation I, I make for someone. Now, do you ever loan out or rent out guitars to musicians for them to use in the studio? You know, I, I have done that on occasion. It's something that we don't advertise that we do, but we, we'll pull favors, yeah, especially if we have history with them. And we like to be helpful in the way, you know, some of the local bands that we've worked with for years come in. My deal is, hey, if he's going to be hanging on the wall over the weekend, it's going to be in a studio making beautiful music with you. So, you know, let's get it in there, you know. And then, you know, I would say maybe 40, 50% of the time we'll end up buying the thing because they fall in love with it. Okay. Yeah, that, that makes happened, sense. That happened with Dave Matthews here about 15 years ago. And uh, we lent Dave an old national resophonic guitar, old steel one from the 30s. And his folks came back after the weekend and said, he's not letting us bring this back. (laughs) (laughs) And I go, that's fine. (laughs) You know, as I get older, I think more about my philosophy of life, which is a pretty big question now, but it wasn't even my thinking back in my 20s. Would you be up for sharing some of the wisdom that you've gained over the years? Um, are Are you talking... Kind of about my approach to life here yeah. at 63, kind mm-hmm. of after all the stuff I've been through. And yeah, I, yeah, I mean, for me, it's I, I try to keep it really simple. You know, um, one thing I've really done is just kind of slow down and pay better attention to details. Uh, you know, when we're in our 20s, we're just blazing through life. And it's funny how much I notice, you know, when I just slow down a little bit and, um, and kind of savor the moment, too, you know. And, and another thing that's kind of really happened, you know, as we, I kind of look on the you know, last 20, 25% of my life, whatever, you know, how, how much time you think you might have left. But yeah. For me, I, I think that uh, having some kind of a spiritual life is really important. And it, uh, I'm not saying you have to, you know, be a Jesus freak or, or even believe in, in God as people perceive him, but just have something that's just creation you know, something that you can just stop and get out of yourself. Yeah. Because something greater than yourself. Sure. And, 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 you know, I find a lot of peace in that and, and, and helping other people. You know, I like to help folks. And down here in Piner Square, there's a, we have a homeless epidemic going on down here. There's tents everywhere. Really? The under the viaduct. Oh, oh, yeah. It's, it's, it's an epidemic and it's a big problem for the city of Seattle right now. So we, you know, we, we try to, we try to help folks, you yeah. know, yeah. rather than, you know, look down on them. I mean, they're, they're people, and they're obviously struggling. So you know, we try to give a little bit back rather than just, you know, I always say be, be part of the solution rather than part of the problem. Now, I must apologize to my listeners for losing the last two minutes of my interview with Jay Boone. I didn't detect the computer glitch until I had said goodbye to Jay and hung up the phone. The essence of the remaining two minutes of the interview was simply that we would be back in touch again, uh, probably in early 2018, to find out if anything new is happening. I really enjoyed the interview, and I think Jay did too. We shall catch up with him again sometime in the next few months. And by the way, you can visit Jay Boone at his website, www.emeraldcityguitars.com. I want to play you two or three short clips from past shows that I did with Jay and the Americans, The Fifth Dimension, and Joey D and the Starlighters. They're short clips, two minutes each. And for those of you that haven't heard these, you can go back and listen to the full hour-long podcast of each show. The first one is from podcast episode 11 with Sandy Dean of Jay and the Americans. For all of you that remember the great Lieber and Stoller hits like Yakety Yak, Along Came Jones, Love Potion Number 9, Stand By Me, and On Broadway, Jay and the Americans were initially signed by Lieber and Stoller, and Sandy Dean tells about how they got their first hit. We were sitting in Lieber and Stoller's office waiting for some new material. 
and all the good material was going to the other groups because they were hot and we were cold. And we were getting the leftovers and we didn't like the leftovers. So Jerry and Mike say, hey, you want to hear the Drifters' new single? We go, yeah. So they take us into their office and they play us a demo, actually a finished master of Only in America huh? with the Drifters singing it. And we sit there and we all look at each other, we're dumbfounded. And it was great. First of all, it was great, a great song. And we say to them, well, why wouldn't you give us that song? Yeah. What would be more of a natural hookup than Only in America by taking the Americans? Mm -hmm. I mean, doesn't that sound like it makes sense? Sure. You know, we were very in awe of them, and we never talked back or got mad. You know what I'm saying? We just listened and watched. But we got annoyed at that one. And they said, hey, that, you know what? That's how it goes. You know, they're hot and they're getting first choice. So we went home and we were really miserable because we said, wow, that would have been a hit for us. And we had the new Jay to boot because the other Jay packed it in. And so Jay numbered, we're home. And the phone rings. My phone rings and, and Liebus, Jerry Lieber says, you know that song, Only in America? How would you guys like to record that song? Oh, for God's sake. And we go, are you kidding? We wanted to record the minute we heard it. Well, what had happened was they submitted the master to Atlantic Records, ATCO. Well, ATCO turned around and said, hey, we're not going to have our act sing only in America could a guy from anywhere be president. There's no such thing as a black guy becoming president. Gee. And that's nonsense. You know, there wasn't even civil rights yet. Yeah. This was 1963. 64, you know? So, Ahmad Erdogan threw the, the session back in their face. Now, they had paid for that session with their own money. So, all of the strings and horns and the whole track and all of the session money was spent. So, they called us and they said, how would you like to? I said, sure. So, you go into the studio and they're playing us the Drifters track in the Drifters key, which was much too low for us. But we recorded the song and then what happened was, uh, when we finished it, Jerry and Mike said, well, you know, it sounds a little dull. I think we could speed it up. And so they sped the song up. And then when it went to mastering at UA, the guy in the mastering places, it sounds a little slow. It sounds dull. And he sped it up. So he put it into your key, ultimately. Yeah, but we sounded like Alvin and the Chipmunks. Oh, <laughs> This next clip is from podcast episode 18 with Florence LaRue of The Fifth Dimension. Here she's talking about when they entertained at the White House. All the awards that we've won, there's so many other things to me that have been more memorable than winning the awards. One of them was when we sang at the White House, and at the time, President Marcos and, and, and the President of the United States were both there. And I, it was very emotional to realize how music can bring people together from different countries and different races. It was very, very moving to me. I, I, I remember that moment very precisely. I'll bet that whole process of just going there, going in, being around that whole scene had to be a, a completely different thing for you to do at that time. Right. And even more so than that, the fifth dimension went to the behind the Iron Curtain at that time, a State uh, Department sponsored tour. And we were performing, we performed in Turkey, Romania, uh, Czechoslovakia, several other countries. I'll never forget, we were on stage, and at the end of the show, people in the audience rushed the stage. It was very frightening, but they wanted to touch us because we were their touch to the free world. That's amazing. And finally, this last one is from one of my favorite interviews, podcast episode 16. Joey D. tells about how he went from a cabaret singer to a big star almost overnight. They were playing at an unknown club called the Peppermint Lounge in New York City that suddenly became the place to be seen, and the Peppermint Twist became the in thing. Do you remember any of the celebs that were coming through there when you were uh, doing the peppermint uh, twist and that whole scene? Well, Dick, it's hard to recall anybody that was famous that didn't come there. Yeah. That wow. would be a much shorter list. John Wayne, the Duke, came in. He didn't twist, but he was there. Liberace, Salminio, Matt King Cole, Judy Garland was there every night. Shelley Winters, Shirley MacLaine, Marilyn Monroe, Ava Gardner. 
I mean, the list is just endless. You name star, they came to the Peppermint Lounge. Jackie Kennedy, Ted Kennedy. I mean, Ed, from all strata of society. When I first worked there, for your listeners that are not aware where West 45th Street is, it's part of Hell's Kitchen. And that was like uh, when I first started there, we had sailors, hookers, and <laughs> and longshoremen, dock wallopers. I mean, this, this was my audience. <laughs> And a lot of kids, because the drinking age in New York at the time was 18 years old, and in Jersey, 21. So a lot of the kids from Jersey would come over the bridge or through the tunnel to see us, and they could legally drink in New York City. And the fights in there would <laughs> that we would have in there sometimes were just incredible. They would be similar to a John Wayne uh, Western movie at the height of the, <laughs> the scene where... The big fight broke out. Well, that that's what the Peppermint Lounge is like because you had people from all strata. And in the beginning, I'm talking about. Right. But yeah. then after the, the swells came in, they had so many bounces there, everybody behaved. I remember the owners of the Peppermint Lounge, Sam Kornweiser, Ralph Segazi, and Lou Lombardi, they would say to me, because I was a you know kid from a blue-collar family, and I didn't know anything about the big city. When I came in and the fights broke out, I didn't know what the heck to do. So they said, when a fight breaks out, just play louder and don't stop. (laughs) (laughs) Some of you probably already know that the America's Oldies But Goodies podcast is on iTunes, Stitcher.com, and iHeartRadio. And I've got my own app, which you can get through the iTunes app store. Just do a search for America's Oldies But Goodies. As Chris mentioned earlier in the show, you need to visit my website, americasoldiesbutgoodies.com, and not only take a listen to the archives of all of our shows, but check out the groovy merchandise. For all you health-conscious baby boomers, because I'm type 2 diabetic, you're going to want to check out my other website called reduceyournumbers.com. It features nutritional supplements to lower your blood sugar and also for weight loss. You'll find those at reduceyournumbers.com. And finally, email me with your suggestions on what guests you'd like me to have on the show. I'd love to hear from you. So until next week, keep your face in a smile. It makes everything worthwhile. Bye-bye. You've been listening to America's Oldies But Goodies with Dick Scapatoni. If you've got any questions or suggestions, send us an email. The address is dick at americasoldiesbutgoodies.com. Join us again next week for more memories from the good old days. In the words of Jerry Garcia, what a long, strange trip it was. The Swingin' 60s. I'm John Berg. See you then. Da, 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 da.